Hello everyone and welcome to the 37th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Mattias Rydström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 37th episode, I'm extremely happy to have Albert Laszlo Barabasi as my guest. So, welcome, Laszlo, to this podcast. Matthias, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, for the people that doesn't know you, who are you, Laszlo? <laughs> and you're asking me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in any case, let's just uh, you know stick to the facts. Uh, I am a network scientist. Uh, I work at Northeastern University, Harvard Medical School, and the Central European University in Budapest. Uh, I'm based in mainly in Boston, and some of my time I spend in Budapest. And I explore all kinds of networks out there, uh, from biological to uh, communication to social networks. All right. How did you end up in this field? You know, that's not a normal <laughs> normal way. Sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I I'm trained as a physicist, and uh, fresh with my PhD. I was hired by the IBM TG Watson Research Center. This was, we're talking about 1994. And uh, they gave me a job with no job description that I could do research on anything that I wanted. And at that time, I was living in New York City. IBM is in Westchester County, just north of New York City. And walking through the street, I realized how many networks are out there. And we don't think much about it. And, and, I realized that the tools that I had as a physicist, as a, particularly as a statistical physicist dealing with randomness, could be amenable to kind of start asking questions about networks. So this was around December 1994. And at that time, I decided that my next topic of interest will be networks. But this was a very rocky journey because I ended up writing a paper that I was very proud about and I submitted to four different journals and everyone rejected it. And no one said that the paper is wrong. Everybody kind of said, why do we care? <laughs> and it wasn't until five years later in 1999 that I managed to actually publish my first research paper. And that and a few other papers that came out in that mo uh, the same years have started a new field that today we call network science. And so that was kind of my beginning. And now we have a field of network science. I work in the Institute of Network Science. There are dozens of institutes around the world. You can get a PhD in network science in the US, in Europe, in Asia. So we have come a long way since 1994. Wow, uh, that's a that's a very interesting background. Normally, my guests here are people that is sort of experts in telecom networks and and um, mm -hmm. sometimes data networks. But your networks, when you refer to networks, that could be any type of networks. I know you talk about neurological networks, uh, technical networks, social networks. What sort of what are all the networks that you you kind of talk sure. about? Sure, and and let's actually step back and say why would the physicists care about networks, right? Mm -hmm. And I come out of a school in an area that focuses on complexity, 
right? To understand how complex systems behave, what is their structure, how do we understand their behavior? And if you look carefully, we realize that virtually all systems that we perceive as complex have a network architecture. Let's start with biology, like our cells are really nothing but genes and other chemicals, proteins and metabolites that are interacting with each other. And through these interactions to a very precise uh, path, uh, pathways and networks, you actually have something that we call life. If you think about consciousness, really, it's the result of neurons being linked together in a very precise manner, creating our brain, and it's the activity of that network that leads to consciousness, thinking, memory, and you name it. But even if you think about the economy, right, it's really, we tend to think that we interact with the magical market, but really the economy is just a bunch of buying and selling relationships, right? So it's, it's a network between different economic players that offer services and goods to each other. So virtually any complex systems that you can perceive, or if you look very carefully, you realize that there is a precise network behind that. So what systems do we study? We study all systems that we perceive as complex. And really the revolution that happened in the last 20 to 30 years was the realization that much of the source of complexity is really rooted primarily in the network structure that is in the structure of the system that allows it to exist. All right. So I guess a telecom network that we sometimes feel is complex, that's not complex compared to a lot of other networks you're working with, really. It is. It is actually one of the first studies that we did on network science that we managed to publish. The very first one was on the World Wide Web, and I'm very aware that that's not an infrastructural network. But the next one actually focused on the robustness of the internet. So in 2000, we published a paper which was featured on the cover of Nature, how the internet as an infrastructure is very robust to random node failures, but very fragile to targeted attacks when the biggest nodes are being removed. And this was just kind of a demonstration that we used internet as a fold, right? As a, and as a network, because by then, there start, we started to have access to maps of the internet infrastructure, but it was a finding that applied to many, many different systems. So in my lab, we focus on multiple systems, but we actually kind of, when we ask something fundamental about networks, we try to test them on multiple networks. So we use uh, internet maps, worldwide web, subcellular network, brain maps, whatever is available. Uh, at the level of detail that the question we ask could be tested on it. All right, oh, that's fascinating. And, and and practically, you know, the the internet of nineteen or or two thousand when you wrote this is pretty much the internet of today. The same rules apply. It's still sort of based on a best effort. It's based on trust. There are no <laughs> real rules in some way. So whatever you saw in those days is still applicable, but so much larger. That's true, and but there's also similarities uh, really on the structure. Uh, so you talked about the motivations, the mechanisms of how the internet works and exists. But one of the biggest discovery probably of network science, and I'm partly responsible was, is what we call universality. And what is universality? The idea that in principle, I can give a big, uh, an hour long talk how the cell 
where, where kind of proteins interact with each other and with other molecules is really fundamentally different from the internet or the world wide web, right? Because in one case, the nodes are uh, molecules, in the other case are uh, are uh, you know routers in the third case are actually web pages and the links also have very very different nature so it would not be surprising at all if we would have arrived to the conclusion that we need to separately study each of them because they all have their unique characteristics the reason we have a network science and not an internet science and the World Wide Web science and the cell science, right, is because in 99, we and others discovered that architecturally these networks are very, very similar to each other. And most important, the laws and mechanisms that govern the emergence of the architecture of these networks is the same. And this is not just they look alike, but we can measure precisely the mechanisms that drive the growth of the internet. And we did that, and many others did that. And we find that it's the same law supply that we see in the cell or we see in social networks. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, is there anything we can apply today when, when we build networks about all this? You know, So that's very interesting. And, and that kind of speck to the question is that, do you really build your networks? And I know you who actually kind of run a company who is building your network feels like you have total freedom about how you're going to build your network, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, you don't because you are actually satisfying need. And, and hence, the network is building itself to satisfy needs. And this was kind of the biggest discovery of network science is where is the decision, where, where the decision happens, right? And this goes back to, to the very first blueprint of the internet, right? So in the 1960s, Paul Baran was the first to come up with the, with the idea of message passing and the idea to think about the internet structure. We didn't call it internet at that time, but a communication system uh, structure. And he was motivated by military needs, right? Like, how do you build a network for the United States that Russian nukes cannot take out, right? Mm -hmm. A threat that never goes away. <laughs> but but uh, fundamentally, he actually envisioned that we're going to build a network that is engineered from the outset for that purpose. Then the real internet came about a decade or two decades later, and it was started in California in the, in the 1960s, 70s, libertarians, the thinking, right? And instead of having building a system that is centrally designed, they built protocols where any node can connect to anybody whom they want to, as long as the two ends agree that they want to connect to each other, right? So, so, so the way the internet is built today, right, is that me, if I need a new node, whether it's a local router or a big institutional router, and I don't have to explain it to you, you know that better, right? I can shop around and connect at multiple places, and uh, and and hence the internet became an organically growing network rather than a centrally designed network. And to some degree, the backbone that you yourself administer is following that, right? Yeah. No, you're right. So, and, 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 and this is not unique to the internet, right? The same is true for the World Wide Web, right? It says that I add the new web page 
and I decide what other what links do I add to my web page, and I can connect to your web page, and you can do nothing about that, right? Yep. And so, so, so fundamentally, one of the big realization was kind of, and actually, this was our work in 1999 that became one of the most cited research paper of the decade in all sciences, by the way, was that really instead of thinking of a central design, the power is at the level of the nodes. And networks in all different areas grow one node at a time. That is, new nodes come in and they use some kind of decision protocol, whether economic interest or access to services or access to information, whatever, to decide where they connect. And when you put the power at the level of the individual nodes, an organically emerging network kind of is the result. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we showed that under those conditions, the networks will be very, very similar to each other. They all, all have what we call a scale-free infrastructure, which means that naturally a few major hubs will arrive, uh, uh, will arise, and many, many, many small nodes. And the ratio of the big hubs to the small nodes is, is follows a very precise power law. That is a mathematical law that tells me how many big nodes do I have given the size of the system and what will be their, uh, their size, how big those nodes will be. And one of the things we noticed kind of following 1999, that this applies to the internet, to the cell, to the world wide web, to social networks. This is a universal property. So things that you actually see in the internet infrastructure is not something that is the result of a central design or her grandmaster's plan, but it is identical to what we see in other systems, and it's a pure consequence of the laws that govern the emergence of any network. Wow. That's really cool. That's, I like that a lot. Uh, one of the things I've seen also in your work is that you're sometimes connecting networks and, and any type of network to art. Uh, <laughs> yeah. how, how is that? Yes. You know, where does That's that... a parallel journey. Uh, be, uh, so I grew up in Transylvania, which is in Romania, mm -hmm. during the Ceausescu's communism, and my first love was art. I wanted to become a sculptor. Mm -hmm. But after I in, uh, investigated deeper, how does one become a sculptor, I realized that in the country, because art was de-emphasized during communism, we were only five spots at the university to be a sculptor. So I chose the easy way out and ended up becoming a nuclear physicist and eventually a theoretical physicist. And But the love for art stayed with me. And so as I was developing the tools of network science, I also invested lots of time individually as well as my lab's time to develop what we call the visual language of networks. That is, how do you show, how do you represent networks? How do you visualize that? And that was a journey that was truly private in the sense that I did it because I was interested. I wanted to see the objects that we are studying. And uh, we occasionally put some of these images into our research papers. But what happened around 2000 is this body of work that really spans uh, now 25, over 35 years 
was actually discovered by museums and galleries and they started showing it they started requesting it they start then big new york museum started to buy some of this work from us <laughs> and then we then we had a big uh, retrospective in budapest and in germany and now it has the the kind of the artwork has a life of its own being shown at multiple museums just two weeks ago uh, the last week we closed the big exhibit in Milano and we opened another big, much bigger exhibit actually in Romania. But this, the, the art that we talked about is really deeply linked to our research in the lab because we really practice what I call dataism. That is art that is deeply rooted in data and particularly in our case, rooted in network-based data. And uh, and you know you can you can, we can look at these visualizations as just fun to understand what the system yeah. is. But if you see it in the art art space, you you actually see a unique aesthetics and artworks on their own right. Wow, oh, that's really cool. I I need to go in and have a look at that. Uh, really cool. Uh, one of the things I saw when I read about you before this is that you run something called the Barabasi Lab. Uh, mm-hmm. What is what is that? So uh, the Barabasi Lab is uh, is actually a group of researchers, mostly individuals who either getting their PhD or mostly they have already got their PhD and they're in postdoctoral position. It's based in Boston. And uh, this is the lab where we where I do my research with the help of these uh, young group of individuals. Uh, lately, we also added, well, not so lately, actually, about 10 years ago, we started to hiring designers. So now we have about four or five designers or people involved in the art space. And we have about 20 people who are researchers. Uh, the reason it's called Barabashi Lab is, is just following the nomenclature of the biological setting. So... Uh, when before coming back to Boston, I spent a year at Harvard Medical School, and now also I'm a faculty there. And uh, in biology, the research labs are named by it uh, after the PI, so Smith Lab, uh, you know, Brown Lab, whatever the name of the PI. So we ended up following that transition uh, because. Part, half of the work at the lab is really based in the biology space on subcellular networks and so on. So that was the most natural naming. But now the Barabashi lab became an entity of its own in the sense that our art is also signed by the Barabashi lab because with that we actually acknowledge that it's a collective work. So there's not a single person who paints the work but multiple people contribute to the cleaning of the data, collection of the data, the visualization process and eventually the manufacturing of that artwork, whether that means that we paint it on oil painting or whether we print it on the glass or in some or, or 3D printed as a sculpture. But through this name, we actually acknowledge the collective nature of the work, whether that's science or art. Okay, oh, that's really good. Uh, all right. Uh, another thing you're doing is I've seen that you have written a number of books. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, your first book was called Linked. Uh, I think one of the most famous books, you know, could you just describe why did you end up writing books? So, so that's a good question. Like when, when kind of, so as I told you earlier, I started thinking about networks and working in 1994 and it wasn't until 1999 that we managed to publish our first papers on the subject. But at that moment, there was like an avalanche of publications that came out both from my lab as well as just happening in other labs as well. Suddenly, everybody became curious about networks. So in 2000, I kind of said, 
it's such a pity that these ideas that are so fundamental to humanity are all stuck in research papers and the language of the uh, research community. And, you know, they were all published in very high-profile uh, venues like Nature and Science and other uh, uh, prominent places. But nevertheless, the language we use, right, is that of a scientific language. And the implications, however, were much wider. So I decided that I need to translate that uh, into a language that is accessible to most individuals out there. And also to give me an opportunity to think about the implications of the many discoveries that we are making. And it's interesting because when I started writing LinkedIn, when I, even when I finished it, I had in mind, say, a thousand uh, the physicists or computer scientists who may be interested in networks, right? And mm -hmm. mostly graduate students who thought this would be a good book for them to understand why do we care about networks. Mm -hmm. And I was most surprised that when the book came out, then it was, for example, chosen by venues as the best business book of the year, because I have never had a mind to actually write about business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really just wrote about the fundamentals of networks and why networks exist and how they behave and how do we think about that. But it turned out to be very transformative for that particular generation uh, in the sense that it really provided for the first time the language of the networks. It provided the language through which we can converse and analyze and understand networks. And to my pleasant surprise, the book is still selling in 30 languages all over the world, continues like it never stopped actually selling. Wow. So it's still kind of, uh, despite the fact that some of the examples are now 25-year-old, right? And if I, I would use much more up-to-date examples in that, the ideas and the laws and the concepts are still as valid today as they were valid 25 years ago. We just know much more about uh, networks than we did back then. Yeah, oh, that's really cool that a book is still relevant. That's, uh, that's amazing. Uh, since then, I've seen that you've written a number of books, uh, some of the books around more sort of social networks and social skills and all that stuff. How did you go in sure. that? Why did you go in that direction? So, uh, you know, you keep evolving. And one of the one day about 10 years ago, uh, a student and my uh, Dushan Wang uh, and myself were kind of chatting about what should be the next research project to focus on. And one of the things we thought, hey, it's interesting now, all this data is emerging about the scientific enterprise of like who published where, and this is becoming available in databases. And could we kind of use a network perspective to understand how the scientific community works? And that simple idea unleashed a whole research project in the lab that is still ongoing, which we call kind of jokingly the science of success, which is to understand uh, in different areas, how do the networks that you are embedded in affect your ability to get things done? And then we, of course, as we dig into that, we realize it's not only about networks. We had to kind of rethink the, the concept of what success is, what performance is, and how they connect to each other, and when the network is relevant and when it is not. And finally, same story as we had with networks, right? We did a bunch of research papers where we kind of published our results, both in nature and science. And I felt like, once again, these results are so relevant 
not only for scientists, but also for a general audience. So I sat down about five years ago and ended up writing another book called The Formula that is really summarizing our and other researchers' results of how does success emerges uh, in different areas, different professional areas. And what is different about this work from many, many books that you find in the bookshelf about success is that this is a data-driven book, right? So we are not just simply saying, let me pick five famous individuals and try to understand why they were successful. In all the cases, we look at successful and non-successful people. We look at the whole population and understand what are the quantity patterns that we can infer from the data that explains how, whether a scientist or an artist or in other areas, someone becomes successful, what are the laws that govern that? And um, so, so it is really kind of focused deeply on what is the evidence for the mechanisms that drive performance and success in a society. All right. Oh, that's cool. I, I, that one I need to have. I want success, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's really, really good. Thanks, everyone, for listening. In the next episode, we will continue to talk to Albert Laszlo Barabasi, so stay tuned until next time. Please also remember the Twitter handle, ConnectivityPod, for updates. <laughs>